We are in Daniel. We're in Daniel 6 this week, which is the, the well-known story of Daniel in the den of lions. And uh, if you remember, we've talked the last couple of weeks about the structure of the book of Daniel, how it's a kind of a ladder structure that goes up, hits a peak, and then comes back down. And at the peak are chapters 4 and 5 that we talked about the last two weeks where God humbles two kings. And that's kind of the center of the message of the book of Daniel. And now this week with chapter 6, we start to work our way down the other side of the ladder. And so chapter 6 corresponds to chapter 3, which if you remember, chapter 3 is the story of the three faithful men and the fiery burning furnace. And there are some connections between the two, some similarities. So in both stories, there's a death threat for those who won't comply with the king's command. In both stories, there are faithful Jews who refused to comply with the pagan decree. And for them, it would be better to face a noble death than to continue living ignobly. Both stories mention God's angel helping God's servants. Both stories show God's faithful servants being supernaturally preserved while the wicked who oppose them die. And in chapter 3, that's those are the, the guards who take them and they perish because the furnace is overheated. Both accounts explicitly state that God's servants trusted in him. And both stories present the king praising God and decreeing that he should be respected. And finally, both accounts end with a promotion for God's faithful servants. So there are a lot of similarities between the stories in chapter 3 and chapter 6. So uh, let's pray, and then we will we'll jump into this story. Father, we thank you that we're gathered together Thank you for your word, and thank you for the preaching of your word, and we pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, uh, not just to give us a better understanding of Daniel chapter 6, but of how you want the lessons in it to be worked into our lives and to show forth in our character and in our actions. I pray for the preaching of the word tonight in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 6. And then back up one verse to chapter 5, verse 31. That's where we're going to start. I think I said last week that uh, the very last verse in chapter 5 really goes with chapter 6. So we're going to start there with 531, which says, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So Darius the Mede receives the kingdom. Uh, remember that God had moved out of the temple in Jerusalem and he set up a new house in the form of a worldwide empire that would be facilitated through four successive kingdoms. Babylon was the first of the successive kingdoms, and now the empire, the Medes and the Persians, take over at the end of chapter 5. They're the chest and the arms of silver in the statue from chapter 2. And Darius receives the kingdom. It's an intentional way of saying that it was given to him by God. He didn't go out and take it. This kingdom was given to him by God. And as Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, he said, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And so God has given the kingdom to Darius and he's received it. Okay, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
So Darius sets up his kingdom and he makes Daniel one of three high officials. And Daniel probably was known to Darius before Darius took over. Darius probably knew of Daniel's reputation and, and all the things that he had done under Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And so whatever status Daniel had lost between Nebuchadnezzar and Darius taking over uh, is now regained under the new king. And I think this is due to something that a popular author named Cal Newport talks about in a book that he wrote called So Good That They Can't Ignore You. That was the title of one of his books. He's, he's known for some other ones, but I think his best one is one called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And the premise of it is that if you're really, really good at something, if you have some skills and you're really, really good at something, and those skills are valued, you'll be in demand. Pretty much no matter what, you will be in demand. And so Daniel is too good to be ignored. Even under a new regime, what Daniel can do, because he's in God, makes him too good to be ignored. And so Darius taps Daniel to serve as one of three high officials in his kingdom, and then he quickly outperforms the other officials, the other two, to where Darius wants to set him over the whole kingdom. He's going to make him uh, his main guy in charge. And this reminds me of Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine, which says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. That pretty much fits the bill for Daniel. He's not standing before obscure men. He's standing before kings. And Darius plans to set him over the whole kingdom. And we're reminded also of Joseph um, being placed in charge by Pharaoh over all of Egypt. There's Pharaoh and then there's Joseph. Now, Daniel was probably, we talked about this last week, he was probably in his mid-80s when Darius took over the kingdom. And we don't know exactly how old he is when this story happens, uh, but we know that he can only be older, right? He can't be younger. He can only be older. And so he's maybe somewhere between 85 and 90 at this point. He's quite old when we get the story of him in the den of lions. And I was talking to Ben Hughes last week about Daniel's age in this story. And um, we were talking about how Daniel was probably quite old. And a couple of days later, he sent me a he sent me a text with an image in it. And I asked if they could put it on the screen. Um, this is from a children's storybook of Bible stories. And what I think is really interesting is that Daniel is elderly in this. You almost never see that. We, we often think of Daniel as a young man in the story of him being thrown into the den of lions. So I think it's really neat that uh, in this depiction, in this child's storybook of Bible stories, that Daniel is an elderly man. So, um, Okay, so verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So in chapter 3, the wise guys go to the king, go to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they tattle on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they don't bow down when the music starts playing. They go and they tattle, but they don't really lie in wait. Uh, here, the high officials actually conspire together against Daniel, and they try to entrap him. And so we see a progression of wickedness among the king's officials in these stories in the book of Daniel. And I think this is not surprising because as we've talked about with the statue, uh, the closer that you are to heaven, the head of gold, the closer you are to heavenly-like rule. Well, now we've moved a little bit further down, and so we're getting away from heavenly rule. 
And so these conspirators are actually working against Daniel rather than the first ones who went and tattled on him, on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they recognize they're not going to find Daniel in a scandalous situation. Daniel is pretty much bulletproof as far as scandals go. So they'll have to create one. And so they say, okay, we will not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faithfulness to God prohibits certain actions. And so they say, let's find the hill that Daniel's willing to die on, and then let's make sure he dies on that hill. Let's find out what it is that he can't do, and then let's make sure that he has to do it or he'll die. Verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. It says that the officials come by agreement. This phrase is used three times in this story in chapter 6, that they come by agreement. And it basically means that they conspire together. They are agreeing together to a conspiracy against Daniel. They're maliciously conspiring against a very holy man. And they say that all the high officials of the kingdom are in agreement about this law, which we know is a lie because they didn't consult Daniel about the law. There's no way that they asked Daniel about the law. So they're lying to the king when they say that everybody's in agreement about this law. And it's important to see that in their conspiracy, they're not only attacking Daniel, they're also attacking the king. They're attacking King Darius. They're using the king to accomplish their wicked ends. They're trying to trick the king into doing what they want so that Daniel will end up dead. And obviously this is not what faithful officials should do for their king. And finally, note the cruelty of the punishment, being cast into the den of lions. Not a swift, painless death for disobedience, but being devoured by lions. And this is strictly to inflict suffering on Daniel. That's their whole purpose of, of choosing this punishment, is to inflict suffering on Daniel out of just pure vindictive spite. That's how much they hate him. They want to cast him into a den of lions. Verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. We don't know what Darius's motivation was for doing this. It seems to us like a very ridiculous law. It seems like a very ridiculous thing for him to do. Maybe there was some kind of logic to it for Darius. We don't know. We should probably assume that he wouldn't sign a law that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. So there probably was some kind of reason why he did it. But for whatever reason, the conspiracy has worked, and now the trap is set for Daniel and for Darius. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel hears the injunction go into effect and he doesn't change a single thing about his life. He goes back home and he prays just like he did the day before. Now, you might ask, why did Daniel pray publicly 
knowing this injunction. In a way, you could ask, isn't he just looking for trouble by doing this? Why doesn't he pray somewhere out of sight? Continue to pray, but pray somewhere out of sight. Well, one key to understanding this is that Daniel prays toward Jerusalem. That's what it says in verse 10. He prays toward Jerusalem. And we don't want to blip by this too quickly. So Daniel 9, in chapter 9, 1 through 3, sheds some light on the significance of him praying toward Jerusalem. So this is chapter 9. You can flip over there if you want to, but I'll read it. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent to Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel has either read the book of Jeremiah, it had been written down and he could read it, or he remembers what Jeremiah had said when Daniel was still living in Jerusalem before, the, the, before he was exiled and taken to Babylon. But he knows that there would be 70 years that, that uh, Jerusalem would be desolate. But then that time would be up. So there's a promised end to Jerusalem's desolations. That time would eventually end and the people would be able to go back. And this goes back to the covenant promises in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. If Israel was unfaithful, they would be taken into exile. But one day, if in their exile they acknowledged their sin and they cried out to God, God would have mercy on them and bring them back. Solomon mentions this very scenario in his prayer at the dedication in the temple. Solomon prays this in 1 Kings chapter 8. He says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, now catch this, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And later in chapter 9, when Daniel prays, he ends his prayer by saying, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel remembers Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He remembers Solomon's prayer that if you're taken into exile and you repent, you pray toward your land. And that's why Daniel doesn't change anything about his life. He goes home, he hears the injunction, he goes home, and he continues to pray toward Jerusalem. Because by praying toward Jerusalem, he's invoking God's mercy and for God to fulfill his promise to bring them back. Does that make sense? That's why he doesn't change anything. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement, there's that phrase again, and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? 
The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. So again, they come by agreement. They come as conspirators and find Daniel seeking as God. They, they're lying in wait, kind of like Judas leading a mob out to where he knew that Jesus was going to be. And then they're very shrewd. First, they trick Darius into confirming the law and his penalty. And then once he does this, then Darius is locked into a position that he can't get out of. So they trick him by making him reaffirm the law and the penalty. And then he's pretty much stuck. Verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So Darius is distressed. He has not foreseen these kind of consequences by making this law. And he sets his mind to try to figure out how to make sure that Daniel isn't killed over his foolish mistake. And so he's going to look for every loophole. He's going to employ every measure that he possibly can to save Daniel. But the day goes on and time slips away. And pretty soon it's increasingly evident that he's out of time and he can't save Daniel. And again, the officials come by agreement and they remind Darius that the law is ironclad. It can't be changed. And so we should ask, who has the power now? Does the king have the power? Apparently not. Apparently these officials have the power and Darius is, is kind of stuck doing their bidding. The king's own officials have put him in a situation where he's powerless. And whatever we may think about Darius for establishing this law, the writer, the biblical writer, wants us to know that this is a good king who's trying to save God's servant. He's trying to do everything he can to save God's servant. And he's been utterly wronged by those who are closest to him. Verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So Daniel's cast into the den of lions, and it says that a stone is laid on the mouth of the den. And it seems like a small, necessary note. They put the stone there so that Daniel couldn't just walk out of the den. But it's also a pointer. It points ahead to Mark chapter 15, after Jesus has been killed. And Joseph of Arimathea bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So a stone entombs Daniel in the den of lions just as a stone will entomb Jesus in the new tomb. And Darius says, may your God deliver you. Darius had tried everything he could to deliver Daniel, but he wasn't able to. And so he knows that no matter what kind of a holy man that Daniel was, a man in his own power is not going to survive in a den of lions. Only God will be able to deliver him. 
And so Darius prays that God would be able to deliver him. And it's important, too, I think, to see that Darius undergoes Daniel's suffering with him. He identifies with him in his suffering. He's a king in title only right now. He's not really able to have the power of a king. His own officials have severely undermined his authority. And so in a real sense, he renounces his kingship for the night. Uh, He fasts. He gives up the luxurious food that he would be able to have. He gives up all diversions, all entertainments and indulgences that he would expect to have. And he undergoes a sleepless night. As far as he can do it, Darius descends with Daniel in his suffering. He unkings himself for the night uh, so that he can be in solidarity with Daniel in his suffering. Does that make sense? Verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? So Darius cries out in a tone of anguish. And again, we see his co-suffering with Daniel. And he asks if, if Daniel's God was able to deliver him. And this takes us back to the fiery furnace. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had threatened and said, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? To which the three replied, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Now for us, everything hinges upon what God is able to do. Is he able to protect us? Is he able to provide for us? Is God able to raise the dead? When Jesus' dead body is sealed in the tomb and and the stone is put in front of it, what is God able to do for Jesus? And because we've been steeped in Ephesians, we should, we should think of Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So again, Darius knows that a regular man can't fend off the lions, but God is able to do it, or at least he, he hopes that God is able to do it. Verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. So God had sent his angel to protect Daniel, which reminded us that Nebuchadnezzar had proclaimed that God's angel had protected the three from the flames. Daniel says that he was found blameless. We already knew that he was blameless and that he hadn't done anything wrong to Darius. But he says that he was blameless before his God, which makes us think that if Daniel had stopped praying, maybe he would have incurred blame. Maybe in God's eyes that would have been unfaithfulness. Darius goes from crying out in a tone of anguish when he comes to the den to being exceedingly glad. No harm is found on Daniel, just as the fire had no power over the three Jewish men. Verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And frankly, they deserve it. They deserve it. They've been disloyal and treacherous to the king. 
They'd smiled to his face and said, O king, live forever. And then they were doing this even as they were plotting to weaken him and to have him be responsible for the death of his top lieutenant. But we can't help thinking, why did the families have to suffer too? And I don't know if that's sentiment in us or just the way we think, but we think, why did the families have to suffer too? And I think that's natural to wonder why the families had to bear the weight of their sin. And my answer would be that it's cutting off the line of sin. It's cutting off the line of sin. It's crushing the seed of the serpent who makes war against the seed of the woman. Remember that Daniel and his friends were the seeds of the kingdom. And their adversaries are the seeds of the serpent. And that line needed to be cut off. And so, in a very practical way, it's cut off by the families going into the lion's den as well. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So Darius makes a Nebuchadnezzar-like proclamation that goes throughout the whole empire. And again, this is a Gentile king who promotes the worship of Israel's God. And he confirms the word from Daniel too that God's kingdom will never be destroyed, will be an everlasting kingdom. The stone that will become a worldwide mountain will come and overtake these four empires eventually. And Darius, who will hold power for a little while, rejoices in this. Verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's way too late in the sermon to get into the technicalities, but there's good reason to believe that Darius and Cyrus were the same person. And we'll probably take that up in a couple of weeks. But there's good reason to believe that they were the same person. And uh, like I said, it's too late to get into that tonight. But we're just going to kind of leave it on that note and revisit it at a later time. So I have one point of application for tonight from the sermon. I had three, and then I had two, and now and then I by the end I had whittled it down to one. So there's just one, and that's this exhortation: be so good that you can't be ignored. Be so good that you can't be ignored. I think this is for all of us, but in particular, I think it's for our youth and for our young people out making their way in the world. Daniel was so good that he could not be ignored, or at least not ignored by anybody who knew what excellence looked like and wanted it. Some of the other emperors between Nebuchadnezzar and Darius didn't want that kind of excellence, and so they didn't put Daniel in charge. But Darius did, and he was going to put Daniel over the whole kingdom. Uh, We talked in youth last night about what it might have been like for Daniel in the years between Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. What was his life like as he slowly lost influence and kind of got pushed to the side and the subsequent kings didn't have any use for him, didn't want his counsel? Um, What might that have been like for him? And uh, Mike Ballard made the suggestion, the good suggestion, that it probably didn't matter to Daniel one bit. Probably didn't matter to him at all. Because Daniel was never in it for the position He was never in it for the influence that he could have. He was there because he was God's man in God's place, no matter who was reigning, no matter who wanted his services. And it seems like a long time passes with Daniel on the sidelines. 
But when the queen mother in chapter 5 hears about the writing on the wall and that nobody can read it, and when Daniel is summoned, he knows exactly what to do and what to say. He knows exactly what to do and what to say. He is ready, no matter how much time it intervened before he was last used in any significance, he's ready at that moment, and he does exactly what needs to be done. Uh, Last summer in a sermon, I talked about the Quaker George Fox and the description of him that he was never out of his place or not a match for every service or occasion. I think that's a good description of Daniel. He was never out of place, and he was never not a match for any occasion that he was in. And that's somebody who's too good to be ignored. Daniel had a reputation for possessing an excellent spirit. Wherever he worked, the king benefited from his work. And this isn't just some one-off example in the Bible that we can make a loose application toward. I think it's a pattern. We've mentioned Joseph before. I think this is clear in Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery, and he ends up in the house of Potiphar the Egyptian. What does he do, or how does he do? Genesis 39 says, Joseph found favor in his sight and attended to him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Joseph is so good that the only concern that Potiphar has is what he's going to eat for each meal. That's it. Not, is Joseph cutting corners? Not, can I trust Joseph? Not, is Joseph sloughing off with the other slaves? Not, is Joseph able to do this difficult task that I've given him? It's just, what's on the menu tonight? That's all that Potiphar has to worry about. And after Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph, he gets thrown into the dungeon. Now, you might think it would be totally fair for Joseph to say, you know what, I served Potiphar all that I could. I gave him everything I could, and he didn't believe me. And so from now on, I'm just going to do the bare minimum. I'm going to do the bare minimum that anybody asks. I'm not giving any more than that. But no. A little bit later in in chapter 39 says, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Once again, Joseph is so good that he can't be ignored. And eventually, he'll be second only to Pharaoh in all the land of Egypt. And he will save the world. He will save that part of the world from a seven-year famine. We also see this with David. He plays the harp for King Saul, and then King Saul brings him into his kingdom. We see this with Daniel and his friends who keep getting promoted. Seems like every chapter they get promoted. And in Mark 7.37, the crowd say of Jesus, he has done all things well. And I go back to the passage from Proverbs that I quoted earlier. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And we've talked in the past couple weeks about persecution toward Christians and the possibility of Christians losing their jobs and friends and all that. Well, wouldn't you like to be the person who the boss says, get rid of her? I'm not getting rid of her. If I get rid of her, this whole place is going to fall apart. This whole place wouldn't be able to function. It won't be able to run. I don't care if she's on the wrong side of history or however you want to put it. I'm not getting rid of her. I'm going to keep this place going. She's not going anywhere. Wouldn't you want to be that person in your workplace? 
We all have the potential to be so good that we can't be ignored. But we have to have a vision for it. And then we have to give ourselves toward cultivating an excellent spirit to get there. Amen?